going to start the phrase, you finish it, right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you guys get it. That's like my motto. If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Uh, don't mess with something that's already working. So someone might say to you, your car is like 40 years old. Are you going to replace it? I'm like, I don't know, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Right? My grandparents, I think they had the same washer and dryer for about 50 years of their marriage. And the same dishes that were on their wedding registry, I'm pretty sure. It wasn't broke, right? Don't fix it. Some of you guys out there, be honest, you're still wearing t-shirts you had in high school, right? It's not broke, man. Don't fix it. Uh, your wife has a different opinion. But it's, it, if there's nothing wrong with it, why, why change it up? If something's been working for a long time, there's no need to switch it. And, and when it comes to temptation and sin, this is actually, I think, Satan's motto as well. Uh, hey, he's got a strategy. It's been working for him for a really long time of how to tempt people, bring them to sin. Why bother changing it? He, he has a pattern that he follows. We're going we're gonna to look at the first sin in the Bible in Genesis 3 in a moment, and we're going to see his pattern that he started thousands and thousands of years ago, and he continues to use today. Fortunately, God also has a pattern in how he responds to sin and how he always offers hope and promise as a result of, of sin. So if there's one big picture we're going to look at today, and hope you get this is the big idea of the message. It's not a secret. Uh, beware sin's patterns and believe God's promise. That's what we're hoping to accomplish today as we look at Genesis chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word that you don't uh, leave us ignorant of who you are or what you, you do for us, God, but you graciously bless us with knowledge of you. Uh, knowledge of you that is filled with, with love and joy and, and hope. I pray that we would see that in your word this morning, even as we, we read it. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us. It's because of Christ we can pray. Amen. As mentioned, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, so I'll invite you to turn there right now. Uh, we've been going through a series in Genesis, and we're on, I think, week four out of nine. We're going to go through chapter 12 of, of Genesis, covering uh, what God did in the beginning, as we say. And this morning, we're going to be in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden with the snake. I don't think I need to recap it for you. I'm pretty sure everyone here is familiar with how things played out and, and what went on in that story. But before we start reading it, uh, there's, there's probably two views that a lot of people commonly have of this story. So let me address those first. Uh, the first one is, this is simply nonsense. Absolute nonsense. There's a talking snake who tells a naked woman to eat an apple, and she does it, and God gets really upset. They're like, that's nonsense. This doesn't... Well, of course, if you summarize any story that way, it sounds like nonsense. Um, what if we summarize the story a little bit differently and how I propose we summarize it this morning? Uh, a good kind king invites people into his kingdom and gives them every blessing imaginable. He, he wants them to uphold his standards so he can continue to bless them. And yet an enemy comes into the kingdom and encourages the people to rebel against the king and not uphold his standards. And that's the choice they make. Uh, reconciliation is offered. They refuse it. And so the king says, you are now rebels and an enemy of my kingdom. And he casts them out. Now that story seems to make a lot more sense, and it's not nonsense. That's what we see in Genesis 3. Uh, the other thing people commonly look at when they see this story is uh, it's a nice moral story, but it's a myth, right? It didn't actually happen. This, this, we know things like this couldn't have, have possibly happened. And yet the rest of the Bible doesn't give us the option of believing that. Uh, the rest of the Bible regularly refers to Adam and Eve 
as real historical people over and over again. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus bases his understanding of how marriage works and the doctrine of marriage on Adam and Eve and what happened with them. Uh, Later, the apostle Paul, you can look it up in uh, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Adam as a real person who made a real decision and that impacts his whole understanding of how salvation works and why salvation is necessary. If you read the Gospel of Luke in chapter three, Luke lists a, a genealogy of going from Jesus, tracing his lineage all the way back to Adam. And at what point would Luke have gone from historical people to mythological fake people? Uh, he, he seems to think they're all historical. And so if we throw out this account just as being a myth, we actually are discarding a lot of the Bible with it. So uh, there's more that could be said about both those things. We're not going to dive into that this morning. Uh, instead, we're going to look at the, the chapter Genesis 3 as kind of a, a five-act play. All right, we'll read each Uh, scripture passage as we get to it in each act, but act one, act two, all the way through to act five of how Genesis three plays out. So act one, we'll start there. Act one is temptation. Let me read Genesis three verses one through six to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Well, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. We see a pattern here in temptation that Satan introduces is the pattern he continues even today. The first thing he does in his pattern of temptation is he introduces doubt, right? His opening line in verse one is, did God really say? And suddenly the thing that that Eve was so sure of just a moment ago, now she's wondering, did he really say that? Like maybe... And she's going back in her mind, trying to think, was it actually, is that how it it played out? Introducing doubt is a great strategy for Satan to lead people towards sin. Next step in his temptation process is just an outright lie, right? You see that in the next thing he says to her. He says, you shall not surely die in verse four. I know what God said to you. I know what you believe to be true just a moment ago, but it's not true. Right? I have a more accurate understanding of the world than God does. It's, it's not true. He, he's just lying. Doubt to lie. And then he actually makes God out to be the enemy in this story. You see verse five, he says, um, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He, he doesn't want you to be like him. He, he's, he's withholding this from you because he's trying to keep you down. He wants to have his position of power and he wants you in servitude. And the way he's protecting that is by keeping this from you. He's not trying to help you. He's your enemy. Now let me pause on this part of temptation for a moment because I think this lie is actually so convincing that some of us this morning are looking at this passage and we're believing the snake's logic as he talks. Right? We we think, well, why did God put that tree in the middle of the garden? He put it there just to say, don't eat it. Right? Well, he wasn't being very kind. He gave her all the other things. Why didn't he give her this tree? Why can't they have that fruit? 
It seems like God's not out there to help Eve. He's actually withholding things from her. Have we forgotten every other blessing that God gave Eve? Right? He puts her in the most beautiful garden ever created. Everything's perfect. Her relationship with God is perfect. Relationship with other people is perfect. There's perfect harmony between beasts and nature and everything. All the fruit you can imagine. And there's one thing that God says, not this. And after all the good things that God has done to this point, did it occur to Eve that perhaps he was withholding this thing for her good too? And so many of us do the same thing. We focus on that one thing we don't have, but it seems like God's withholding from us. And we say, God must be my enemy. He's not giving me that one thing that I want. And we forget all the other blessings that he's given to us earlier. It's very deceptive logic that the snake uses to convince us God's not here for our good, but God's our enemy. So in the temptation process, we have doubt, we have a lie, we have God as the enemy, and lastly, we have sin's offers. Look at verse six, the beginning of it says, the woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise. This looks like it will probably bring me greater satisfaction. It looks pleasurable, looks enjoyable. It might even be wise and make me more respectable to, to take this fruit. And sin is, is offering all these things to her. And the trap is completely laid. Satan has gone through his pattern of temptation. Now, as I talk about this pattern of temptation, uh, you may have seen this play out in your own life and you're able to kind of connect the dots to things that happen with you. But let me give a few examples just for clarity's sake. Uh, let me use the, the sin of, of lust, sexual immorality, how Satan uses this pattern when tempting us there. He starts with doubt and, and we start to think, is, is it really wrong to do this? Is, is this thing actually against God's rules, is it, is it wrong to take a second glance at someone that, that catches my eye? Did God actually say somewhere in here that you shouldn't sleep with someone you're not married to? It's hard to find that verse. Did God actually say it? That's the doubt. And then we move to the lie portion. Look, the thing I'm, I'm doing isn't actually that bad. Uh, other people may have extreme consequences for their sin and their life gets destroyed by this, but what I'm that's not going to happen to me. I won't surely die. And we believe that lie. And then sin, our Satan moves forward in the temptation process and makes God out to be our enemy. You know what, God? Uh, I, I've tried to do things the right way. I, I desire to be married. I'm trying to move towards that. And you keep withholding that from me. Or I, I want to have a better marriage and you're withholding that from me, God. I don't think you're looking out for me. If I want this, I have to take it myself because you're not helping and God's the enemy in sin's temptation. And what does sin offer here? Look, after just this one time, I'll be content. I'll, I'll feel less, less grouchy. I'll be more satisfied. I'll enjoy life and have more pleasure on the other side of the fruit. Sin's trap is laid. Let's use another example. How about, um, how about the love of money? There's a sin that Satan likes to tempt us with as well. Doubt. Does God actually expect me to give away my hard-earned money? Is that what he, he said for us to do? Does, would it even be wise for me to give away money? I don't think that would be a good decision. I'm not sure if that's what God wants from me at all. And then we move into the lie. Look, other people can do this. They all have margin in their budgets, but I don't. I'm different. Um, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give later when I, I feel better about it. And since temptation moves forward to making God as the enemy 
would God actually take care of me if I gave money away? What would be left for me? Who's going to care for me if I have nothing and I give away too much? Or you know what? Uh, I've given God a whole lot of other things. And if he expects me to give money on top of that, then he's actually being very greedy. Is God the enemy in temptation? And then sin has offers that concludes with as well. If I keep this for myself, I'll feel more secure. I'll feel more safe. I'll be wiser and more respectable because I saved, right? There's more examples. Like, should I keep going? I've got another example. Let's do another example, right? How about the sin of self-righteousness? How does, how does Satan's temptation work here? Well, the doubt starts. Am I really so sinful? Do I need as much grace as some other people do? Probably not. I don't think I need that. Do I really need that much grace? And then the lie is next, right? Look, I come to church every week. I sit, I hear lessons, uh, I hear preaching, and um, I, I don't really need to follow the instruction given or be different as a result of it. But there's some other people here that do. Uh, I'm different because I'm mature, and other people are not, and they're the ones that probably need to respond to this, but not me. That's the lie. God as the enemy. Why is God always calling me to change all the time? I found a place where I feel good about what I'm doing. I'm comfortable where I'm at. And yet he keeps calling me to, to be moldable and pliable and to do things differently. I don't, I don't think I'll enjoy uh, the future as much if I let him be the one who keeps changing me and asking me to do different things. I'd rather stay the same. The offer, being proud and unchanging will bring me greater comfort and ease than obeying what God calls me to do and, and being humble and submitting to him and following his call. Right, this, this pattern of temptation, you could, you could lay it on top of any other sin that we experience temptation in, and our ability to fight Satan's logic here is, is laughable. We seem to fall for it every single time. That's why he keeps using the same strategy over and over again, because it's been working against us. And in our story with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, where, where does Act 1 temptation lead to? Act two, sin. Verse six, we see, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Act two is short. Act of sin usually is. Eve takes, she eats. Adam takes, he eats. And every one of us who follow their footsteps, we take, we eat, we have sin in our hands and we, we consume it. And we're about to find out if sin is good on its offers. The things that it promised a minute ago, uh, one thing that's been said about sin accurately is that sin always overpromises and then underdelivers. And you'll see that in Act 3 because what is Act 3? It's shame. Read verses 7 to 13 with me. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You'll notice Eve doesn't receive the things that sin promised her. There wasn't a delight and satisfaction and wisdom on the other side of that fruit. Instead, there was shame and fear. Right, we know they're ashamed because they, they cover themselves. That was their response immediately. The moment they sin, like, we better cover ourselves because they know uh, they're not who they ought to be. And you wonder, like, who are you covering yourselves from? Literally one minute ago, you were naked and everyone on the planet could see you. Like, literally, everyone on the planet could see them. Uh, what, 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 are you, what are you covering for? I think they're covering themselves from every other character in the story. Adam covers himself so that Eve can't see him and mock him. Adam covers himself so that Satan can't see him and accuse him. Adam covers himself so that God can't see him and condemn him. And I think Adam covers himself so that he can't see himself and have to admit that he's sinful and shameful. He's trying to cover all of that with with fig leaves. And, And each of us follows the same pattern after sin when we try to cover ourselves with our own fig leaves. Or when someone points out sin in our lives, our first instinct is, is to cover it by, by making excuses, becoming defensive. Oh, well, the thing I did, it wasn't really that bad. Or I was just a little grumpy at the time. Or, well, you would have done it if you were in my situation or a popular one. I've seen you do worse things than this. Who are you to come after me? We, we try to cover our shame with fig leaves. Sometimes we even try to cover ourselves before we're accused. No one's even accusing us. We're just aware of it. And so we might say, well, let me keep my schedule really busy, and I'm always on the move doing one thing to the next thing, and I'll never have to stop and think about me and, and my inadequacy and my sin just because I keep myself moving all the time and I won't have to address it. Maybe if I, if I drop some good deeds throughout my week, God will notice those and he won't notice my sin. Instead, I can distract him with some of the good things I'm I'm doing. Maybe maybe if I find faults in other people before they can find faults in me, then I'll keep myself protected. I'll, I'll accuse them first. And then we won't have to address our shame. And and we're covering our shame and our sin with fig leaves that don't actually work because the shame is still there. And we still have to deal with it. In verse 8, after they cover themselves, you see that their next instinct is to hide. To hide from God. They they run into the garden, hiding behind trees because they're afraid. And God comes after them with a very gentle voice saying, "Where, where are you? It's interesting that they hide from God because they have shame and guilt And who's the only person who can make it right? God. And they're hiding from the one person that can heal them and forgive them and make reconciliation. And they think, well, maybe if I just don't address it, then I won't have to deal with my shame. This is better to run and hide than it would be to go and talk to him and admit it and confess. And and God is so gentle in the way he pursues. Where, Where are you? He knows what they did. He knows where they are. And and yet he gives them the perfect opportunity to confess, repent, 
and, and seek forgiveness. He, he even says, who, who told you you were naked? Have, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? There's their opportunity. But instead of taking the opportunity for God's graciousness, a chance for forgiveness and reconciliation, they start blaming and accusing and backing away still, hoping these fig leaves work. Well, you, you gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit. There was a snake. And there's all this blame shifting. And, and no one repents and seeks forgiveness. So that leads to act four of our text, Consequence. Let me read verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is right and just for God to give consequences to sin. These aren't unearned. They took, they ate, and now they receive what they've earned as a result. The snake receives uh, dishonor and hostility between man and beast. The woman receives pain and, and broken relationships. The man receives toil all his days and, and hostility between man and nature. But there's another pattern here that we see in the way God works and that every time he offers consequence and judgment, there's always hope and promise laced within it. Did you see the promise in this in this consequence, look at verse 15. I'll read it again for you. He says to the snake, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. That means crush you. And you shall bruise his heel. Even in the consequences, God says, Satan and sin won't get away with it. They will be ultimately dealt with. Someone will come to destroy them both. And in the, in the punishment and consequence, there's, there's hope and laced in with, with promise. And so the fifth and final act of this chapter is hope. We, we've gone through temptation and sin and shame and consequence, but it ends with hope. Let me read the final few verses of our chapter. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. 
There's a lot of hope in these, these verses that you may not see initially. Let me mention uh, two ways there's hope, and then I want to spend some time on a third way. That's a big deal. <laughs> there's hope in these verses. Uh, the first way is uh, in verse 20, right after the consequences, Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living. And the word Eve uh, sounds like the word for, for life-giving in, in Hebrew. Now, you might think, like, that's interesting. You know, just, hey, you look like an Eve. I'm going to name you Eve. Or I guess you and I are the parents of everyone that's going to come after us, so that means you're the life giver, I suppose. But, but putting this verse right after the consequences says something. Because Adam was listening to the consequences. And he knows that through him, death enters the world. The rest of the Bible confirms this, that through Adam, death comes into the world because of sin. But God promised through the woman's offspring, life would come, a savior. And so he names the woman Eve. Life is going to come from you because Adam believes God's promise and he sees hope in the future. There's hope even in naming his wife Eve. There's more hope even in them getting kicked out of the garden. You're like, well, that doesn't sound hopeful. It sounds like bad news. Well, why does he kick them out of the garden? He says, I don't want them to take of the tree of life and live forever. God doesn't want people to be in this state forever. They're, they're cursed. They're separated from him. They're sinful. And he says, I want to fix that. I don't want them to live forever, forever like this. So he kicks them out of the garden because he's going to change things. There's even hope in that. But the verse I want to spend some time on this morning is verse 21. I'll read it again. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, if you remember at the beginning of our story, Actually, at the very end of chapter two, it says, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then they sin and they cover themselves with, with fig leaves. And, and then God gives them the consequences. And in the, in the hope portion, he doesn't say, hey, you know what? Let's go back to the naked and unashamed thing. Or let's reverse the clock. That was pretty good. We'll back it up and we'll go back there. Get rid of the fig leaves. We'll continue with, with naked and unashamed. Right? As if we could say, let's just go back and act like sin didn't happen. Let's just pretend it wasn't there, and, and I wish this thing didn't occur. We can act like it did. Everyone's fine. Everything is fine. And so many of us wish we could do that. Or we have that thing that happened to us or the thing that we did, and we say, I wish I could go back and undo that thing. And maybe we can just pretend that thing didn't happen. Let's act like it's not there the thing that we did to someone else, the thing that someone else did to us that brought shame. We say, I don't, I don't want that. Let's pretend. And if God had said, let's go back to naked anymore, it would have been a farce. It would have been fake. And he would have been saying, you know, act like you're fine. Toughen up. Pretend nothing was there. But he doesn't because God knows that once sin enters the picture, there's no going back. There's no changing it to be just like it was before. They, they tried to cover themselves with, with fig leaves. That doesn't work. And so God says to them, I'll cover you. The shame is there. The sin is there. But I'm going to cover you. I'm going to offer you a way forward that's actually better than it was previously. If, if you go to the end of, of the Bible, right, the, the very end, the book of Revelation. In Revelation, uh, God gives John a vision of what eternity is going to be like, what it's going to be like to, to worship God forever and be with him. 
What John does not see are a whole bunch of people who are now naked again. Right? That's, that's not what happens in heaven. Instead, this is what it says. Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For eternity, people are covered in robes that have been washed white by Jesus Christ. We're we're covered by Jesus Christ. The, The skin garments that God gives to Adam and Eve, they're just a foreshadowing of the greater thing that God was going to do through Jesus. Your shame is there, but Jesus is going to cover it. He's going to be the one who hides your shame. When you place faith in Jesus, your shame is hidden by perfect righteousness. And so when Satan comes to accuse you and say, I'm going to point out what you've done, he finds God's perfection there instead. And when God looks down, who, God who hates sin and condemns sin, he, he looks at you if you're covered by Jesus Christ and he's pleased and he loves you and he wants to bless you because you're perfectly covered. And, and when we look down at ourselves and we know that we're sinful and shameful, we can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that that's not our identity anymore but rather Jesus Christ is our new identity. That's who we see. That's who God sees. That's what everyone ought to see as they look at us, not our shame, but the fact that we've been covered by Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Sin has its patterns, Satan wants to tempt us, lie to us, shame us, and crush us. But God always has promise for us. And that he, he recognizes our sin. He doesn't ignore it, but he covers it and makes a way forward that's better because of him. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you that you have covered my shame, covered my sin. I don't have to deny it and act like it didn't exist or pretend that I'm better than I am. I can admit it, but know that Jesus covers even that. Lord, I I pray for all those here who are struggling with their shame and they're embarrassed of their sin and and they're tempted to think that's their identity, that's who they are, but God, it's not. If they've placed faith in you, you're their identity and you've perfectly covered them. Thank you, Father, for covering us this morning. It's because of Christ we can even pray and approach you. Amen. Amen.